Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day where we can gather together uh, and honor you and lift up your name. Lord, we ask that uh, your word be made clear today, that we would come to understand it in a way that affects our life, that we could see ourselves in your words and scripture, um, that you'd be alive in the process of renewing us this morning through worship and the word and fellowship. We lift all these things up to you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I have to admit something to you. <clears throat> Before going through this passage in Scripture, I hadn't ever thought a whole lot about salt. But it's interesting that in the, in the ancient world, they actually probably would have spent a fair amount of time thinking about and processing things about salt. Um, I got a little bit of history to explain where I'm going with this. It's from Time Magazine. Um, in the ancient world, salt uh, did not just serve to flavor and preserve food, it also made a good antiseptic. The Roman word for these salubrious crystals is sal, and that's a first cousin to the name Salus, who was their goddess of health. Of all the roads that led to Rome, one of the busiest was Via Salaria, which means the salt route, over which Roman soldiers marched and merchants drove ox carts full of these precious crystals up from Tiber from the salt pans at Ostia. In fact, salt was so important that the the Roman army paid soldiers in part out of salt, Hence the phrase that the soldier was, quote, worth his salt. That word salubrious is also a root word out of where we get the word salary. Because salt was used as payment and exchange. During the Middle Ages, the ancient sanctity of salt slid into superstition and the spilling of salt was considered ominous. For example, in Leonardo's, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, if you'll look closely, Judas has just knocked over a jar full of salt. Spilling salt was considered a bad omen, and the spiller of which was said to have to have cast a pinch over his left shoulder because the left side was thought to be sinister, a place where evil spirits tended to congregate. For those who grew up in the 20th century, think Tom and Jerry, right? The the little demon and the angel. 
that started with the superstition about salt. In fact, books have been written <clears throat> about the discovery of salt in its areas and how its trade actually determined the development of certain trade routes, cities, and even the rise of cultures where salt was found. The phrase salt of the earth speaks to what a valuable commodity that salt is, and salt would stand for in ancient times things that were of high value or importance. Now, all this is a little bit removed from my life because to be quite frank with you, when I think of salt, I think whether or not I want sea salt or Himalayan, garlic salt or Celtic sea salt. But when we look at scripture to see things through the eyes of someone in the ancient Near East and what they would have thought about these passages, they would clue into the fact that when Jesus was talking about salt, he was talking about something very valuable. And my first point today, very effective. My first point, we are called to be efficacious. The scripture speaks to how we are called to be efficacious. See, it's, it's easy for us to think of salt and light as clever metaphors rather than practical information about how we're to live our life. See, when you, when you put salt on meat or on food, it permeates the food. It, the salt does not come to taste like the food, but the food's flavor is brought out by the salt. Salt isn't transformed by what it touches, but salt transforms the things that the salt touches. Salt would serve as a preservative in the ancient world. Without refrigeration, they would need a way to preserve meat and keep it fresh, and they would wrap it in salt to do that. Light is a little bit of an easier and more accessible example. If you think about light in, in a world where they had no headlights, no flashlights, no lanterns, and they didn't even have lights on their cell phones. The best we can tell, glasses weren't invented until the 13th century. So at night, if you had any sort of eye problem or nearsightedness or shortsightedness or farsightedness or anything wrong, and you didn't have a light, you're out of luck, right? It's hard enough to drive at night with headlights and good glasses, much less no glasses and no light. So when scripture here tees us up to start to talk about salt and light, it's talking about things with high levels of affect on how people lived their life. Another metaphor for salt, as one author said it like this, people don't actually enjoy salt for salt's sake they enjoy whatever it is that was salted. In that same way, we don't necessarily appreciate light for light's sake, but we appreciate light to show us what's around us. God tells us we are salt of the earth, and by that he means we don't exist for ourselves. But we remain on this earth out of God's divine providence to have an affect on the world around us. 
These verses aren't just so that Jesus can create poetry and metaphor for us to think about our lives, but he's actually empowering us and pointing us to affect the world around us. An interesting thing to note, though, about how both salt and light affect the world around us is to note that neither salt or light have to try hard to be effective. My second point is that we're not called to strive for spirituality. We're not called to strive for spirituality. And by that, I mean salt doesn't have to work hard to be salty. Salt just is salty. It's part of its inherent characteristics. Light doesn't have to work to be a brighter light. It just is light. To bring that back to the Christian example, we all know the experience of wanting to pray more, wanting to love more, wanting to worry less, to be less impatient. But against our best wishes, sometimes we do the opposite of that which we hope to do. See, as Christians, we will not mostly have an impact on the world because of our great preaching or our great outreach or our pamphlet we handed out. We'll have an impact on the world because we're being conformed in the image of Jesus, and that image reflects the virtue and the power of God. 1 Peter 2.9 puts it like this. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are salt and we are light and we're called into a divine spiritual calling and we will engage that calling the most by looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and seeking to let that reflect ourselves and show us how we can be more like Jesus. To be frank with you, I think a lot of Christians miss that, that we got, get caught up in trying to live a more moral standard without more of Christian identity in us. It's my opinion that that's why a lot of peop young people, when they leave home, they end up leaving the faith as well. It's why teenagers are so bored sometimes in coming to church, is that they don't understand Christianity and the cross. See, if the cross just means you have to try really, really hard to be good, it loses its meaning. If we don't send the message, Jesus died to empower us to live different life, we'll spend a lot of time and energy trying to be so doggone good and yet realizing in light of God's perfection, we still can't be good enough. So people get tired and they leave the church. Instead, they take the morals and the disciplines they've been taught and they go leave to pursue other good causes without a good God. 
They take good values from the kingdom and use, use it to affect temporal change in the world. And let me affirm, you can accomplish some good temporal things in this world without Jesus, but you just won't accomplish eternally good things. My third point is that our influence is tied to our identity. Our influence is tied to our identity. There's a philosophical study called ontology. It's the study of being. The study not of what you do, but of who you are. And by mentioning this today, and I think by reading well what Jesus said about being salt and being light, helps us to truly process that Christianity is an identity and not just a creed or an activity. See, if I were to be totally frank with you, sometimes I want to be self-sufficient in living a really good life in my own power. See, when I, when I hear about conviction or my need to lean into Jesus, it grates at my own self-sufficiency. It grates at the fact that I can't live the way I want to live in my own power, that I need to have an identity in someone else to rely on them, and that makes me feel dependent and wanting. Three things that we should know about our identity. This is borrowed from a class by Dr. Rob Ogren. The first is that the power of sin has been broken in the believer's life by participation in the Spirit of God and in the new covenant. And that results in God giving us new intentions of our heart. The second thing is the reality of the power of sin being broken in our core is that we become a new creation in spirit and that we do have new intention of heart to obey God's spirit or law out of our hearts. But the third and the, the really tricky thing about this is all this is complicated by the fact that some of our pre-conversion sinful habits, the ways that we dealt with sin, the ways that we put up with sin, the way that we hid or pushed aside sin, still lives in us. In fact, one of the most common pre-conversion habits or ways of dealing with sin is to develop ways not to be aware of it. Almost to like ignore it to yourself. To deceive others or even yourself about the true state of your own heart. Here's what we know about the heart from Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Even in the Old Testament, the scriptures that talk about the heart and the mind connect those things to a man's ways and to his deeds. 
To tie these things together for us, our impact on the world is predicated by our identity, and our identity is predicated by the desires of our heart, right? Impact, identity, heart. But we limit our impact on the world through our lack of sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that means basically Christ-likeness. See, when we're saved, we're what's called justified. We're saved in the Lord. When we go to heaven, we're what's called glorified. We go on to heaven to live with Jesus forever. But in the middle, there's a process of going from that first day of salvation when you met the Lord to the process of being more and more like him to the day you're taken away in heaven. That, that ramp, hopefully, or that ladder is the process we call sanctification, It's the process of becoming more like Jesus in this life so we can go live with him in glory forever. Yet often in Christian communities, and this is probably true for the Western church as much as any church, we try to make up for Christian character through effort, fortitude, and the power of our self. We want to grab a hold of things in life and like make them happen, right? As if Christian faith and identity in the Lord was just a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of endeavor. If that was true, God himself didn't need to come to earth to die if you could have done it yourself. The reason his blood was shed on a cross is because we're frankly incapable of becoming like God in our own power. In fact, the Bible says we can do nothing in the power of ourself. Yet there's Christians who on a regular basis beat themselves up saying, self don't sin, self don't sin, self don't sin, rather than open up to God with those sinful things in their life and have him come down and start the process of change in their lives and their hearts. My fourth point, even in our new natures, we will struggle with sin. Even in our new nature of being like God, being saved in him and having his righteousness imputed in us, we will still struggle with sin. Sin and guilt, shame and grief are known by us in our current experience, but let's be frank, we don't want to know those things. And we don't want to be known by those things. And thus, we become the habit of filing those things off in what some theologians call the hidden heart. The hidden heart. As we start to talk about the hidden heart, we should come to grips with two things. Number one, most of us don't intend to sin. If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you don't probably wake up in the morning and be like, going to get some really good sin on today. It's probably not how you jump out of bed. But yet, yet if you're honest, you have to admit we all fall into moments like that. The second thing you'll have to come to grips with is that no amount of quick correcting of sinful or rational beliefs 
will alter the course of these long-standing vices or habits. You can't slap yourself out of sinful habits you've carried for your whole life. See, the process of conversion and transformations of these sins in the heart is complex. It ultimately requires a power strong enough to penetrate into the heart and resolve the self's fleshly deep attachments to those sins. Those attachments to sin come in the form of false beliefs, poor values, or sinful desires to meet some perceived need. One theologian said it this way, even in those cases where the intention of the will is good and motivated by our renewed nature, we revert to the pre-converted habit of obscuring our motives for sin from ourselves. These hidden habits unconsciously hinder the believer from having any inclination to look at the motives of sin, not due to any conscious sinister intention, rather that we are intent on the good, perhaps especially in early stages of Christianity, we're content to ponder more the good intentions and look only at our sin when it leaks out into our own behavior. You ever said words like this? Ah, so-and-so made me angry. So-and-so didn't make you angry. They didn't make you anything. Your anger just built up, just built up and spilled out. You ever said something like this? You know, when I'm anxious, I just have to let it all go. That isn't a situational sin. That's the the stress of the pressure and the tiredness and the lack of your will not being able to hold that sin under the surface any longer. Those intentions and anxieties in the heart live under there, and truly they do spill out in times of stress. But when you're not in times of stress, they're under there anyway. Romans 7, verses 14 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, which is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the Apostle Paul 
That's apostle, not B-postle. You know what I'm saying? Like that guy's A-team, wrote books of the Bible, was potentially the greatest evangelist in the first century, maybe ever. What does he say here? But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I don't know about you, but I don't have the spirituality of the Apostle Paul. And despite being saved and having a long-tenured walk in the faith, going through leadership development seminary, growing in that, things still leaked from time to time. We have to start to engage. Change starts to engage when you engage the places where these underlying pathologies are rooted. If you don't do that and address those beliefs and values and desires, you're at a crossroads in your faith where you're either going to do two things own and become aware of those things, take them to Jesus, have him change those and grow to be more like him. Or if you're not careful, you can start to become what some philosophers call the passive Christian. You can come to church, you can sit in a pew, you can know there's a God, but not feel him working inside of you. Always gentle and deferring, but not out of love for Jesus, but here out of a disempowered sense of what to do in light of this internal conflict and not knowing how to engage God in the deep of your heart. It's through this experience and a process of maturity that we start to wonder and then learn what's going on beneath the surface of our heart and thoughtfully explore what those motivations are. One theological writer said it like this. We need to learn to sit amidst our weeds. We need to learn to sit amidst our weeds. If the weed pops up and all you do is chop it off every time, slap your hands, stop that behavior. What happens to the root under the surface? What happens to the root if you just cut off the top? It stays. And it keeps growing and it keeps getting deeper, right? But everything looks good on top, so we're good, right? It's Sunday morning. Nobody saw us arguing out in the car in the parking lot. It's all good. Careful not to live your life that way. The reason, the reason that Christians can learn how to do this And I believe an advantage that Christians have over the entire rest of the world is that God loves us no matter how deep that root is of the weeds, no matter where it goes to, and no matter what it touches. Jesus has his arms open saying, bring that to me. We got it. No big deal. I've seen worse. Except for Dave Rawson. No, just kidding. My fifth point, our heart, our heart struggles relate to our identity. Our heart struggles relate to our identity. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things oppose each other and keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul is carrying his argument one step further, saying, hey, there's conflicting bodies in you. You live in the flesh, born under Adam, and God's telling you, put off the old man. That word for put off, that's like a continuing verb, like put off and keep putting off. It's not like, oh, I took off my raincoat and it's off. Keep putting off that old man. And scripture here is telling us that's going to be a continual thing you will have to do with your life is to assess those deep-held beliefs and values and desires and see where they pop up in your life as sin. Paul's reiterating here that the desires against the spirit, the flesh desires against the spirit and the spirit desires against the flesh, that they're in opposition That we still live in an imperfect state in which we must continually put off those habits, according to Ephesians 4.22, and start to continue to remove the residue of those pre-converted habits and hang-ups that we still continually walk with. The reason for this, and the reason why God gives us a warning about salt becoming unsalty is that God desires to use a clean vessel. God desires for you to be sanctified in order for him to use you. If you'll notice from how he picked his disciples, he didn't pick the the best students in the class. He didn't pick those who were educated. In fact, they say some of the teachers around the disciples are like, who are these guys? They're just, quote, ordinary men. Who are these guys coming to talk to us? The, the experts. A.W. Tozer said it this way. If you're just available for God to work with, he will wear you out giving you work to do. Part of that same discussion of sanctification is being available, being available to God in your fallenness and being able, available for God in his mission. We're going to talk about some of this availability and these deeply held values at some of our upcoming summits. We're going to talk about some of the things that we've hold on to maybe in place of the healthy Christian values that should be permeating and dominating our life. In CMA circles, we, there's actually some formal values that we put forward as a denomination. Some of them are Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus Christ as Sanctifier, Jesus Christ as Healer, and Jesus Christ as coming King. Those are all true. When I talk about our values as a church, I'm not saying those things should be in conflict with those values. What I am saying is if we actually held those values over everything we did and everything we said and everything in our heart, that we wouldn't actually sin. 
that our sin actually comes from a place where I say, I say to Jesus, hey, you know, this, this sense of vulnerability, I can't handle. I can't handle you as king over this part of me. I've been hurt before. That would be an example of maybe self-protection as a value over Jesus Christ as king as being your values. I may say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm really hung up on money. I don't, I don't know if, if I'm going to get a check next week. I don't know how I'm going to pay for things. Lord, I, I don't know if I trust your kingship over my finances right now. See, our values as people and what I'll call people stuff, we import our people stuff into our values because we've lived on this earth long enough to see people stuff go sideways. Like, let's be frank. We've been hurt. Things have gone wrong. Relationships we valued and trusted in went sideways. Like those things hurt. They're real. The pain's real. But the process of sanctification is taking those things that hurt us and are values which became in disarray from that hurt and that sin and that pain and bringing them to Jesus so that he can straighten them out again. Your job in coming to church isn't to clean yourself up to come here. It's to come here so that God will work in our life and clean us up in preparation for heaven forever. It's interesting as I was studying for this to note how some of the world looks at these things. Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud's understudy said this, people will do anything no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing their own souls. (laughs) I wonder where he stole that idea. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making darkness conscious. (laughs) Wow. It's interesting that now, even today, our schools and public spaces have safe zones for those who struggle to hear hard things. To some degree, I get it. If there's not a God in charge who's going to fix those things, I don't want to get hurt anymore. If there's not a God in charge who's going to renew things and bring them into glory, I don't know if I want to deal with this mess. It's by Jesus Christ being available to come and work in our lives, to renew them, to change our community, to renew the world and ultimately renew us completely in heaven, that we find the strength and the confidence and the clarity to look at the hard things be remade. There's a, one of the keys in engaging God's love for us. One theologian wrote this, spiritual care does not want to bring about competence or character or necessarily produce certain types of persons. Indeed, spiritual care uncovers sin and creates heroes out of the gospel makes the gospel our hero and makes Jesus Christ our Lord. See, devotion, submission, and character are far more important in God's economy than intellect and training and gifts. 
A lot of you know this, right? I mean, it's, it's easier to understand the doctrines of God than about the Beatitudes. You could go to seminary and in a few years, memorize the Westminster Confession, go all, through all kinds of doctrine books, but a half a century into the Beatitudes, be like, brother, this is still work. This is still work. I'm talking about the way that you and I live. If our preaching is great and our small groups are great, but our living is small, we're not going to represent Jesus well. See, Jesus isn't just into good teaching here or poetry. He's giving us power and permission to go forward and transform the world. You can dedicate yourself to all kinds of good causes without dedicating yourself to a good, to a good God You can dedicate yourself even to good Christian disciplines without dedicating yourself to him. You can even dedicate yourself more to ministry than you do a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the question for us as a community is, how well are we conformed to the image of Jesus. Do we know too much about what we do and not enough about who we are? In this process of growth, God will be calling you to take a deeper look into your sin, into those deeper motivations in your life where you hold back from him where you're not all in, or where you're sitting on the sidelines. In conclusion, a pastor that I heard put it like this. When he was asked, hey, how can I find transformation in God? How can I find dependence upon him? His answer was, you got two options. You can A... Read God's word and understand that without him, you can do nothing. Or B, you can learn through painful trial after painful trial after painful trial that without him, you can do nothing. (laughs) I would add it helps to reflect on those things and save yourself some of those latter painful trials. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, we might go through those things, quote, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might live our lives as embodied righteousness. Not striving to be righteous, but embodied righteousness. The way that salt isn't trying to be salty. See, when Jesus was on the cross, all my sin was imputed to him. He became a curse so that we would be redeemed. Think about this. All our sin was imputed to Jesus, and none of y'all even born yet. Think about that. That's how heavy his work on the cross was, that millennia later, it still got you covered. Millennia later. A couple things you can do as we... Look forward to leaving here. Number one, you can engage. 
you can engage for salt to work to flavor something, it's engaged, right? Discipleship is distinctive and involved. If we're indistinguishably assimilated or inaccessible hermits, like if we're in the culture, but, but we're not salty, or if we pull out of culture, we'll not fulfill the mandate of these verses. 1 John 1, 5 through 9 says, This message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. That if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, he is in the light and have fellowship with one another, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. The second thing you can do is rejoice. Right? I mean, the, the bad news, guess what? We're sinners, right? Bad news. Good news. It's paid for. <laughs> like, it's good. We get the inheritance. It's all good. It's glorious. We can rejoice in that. Far from being depressed or saddened or angered, Christians should be bidden to rejoice, right? The world gets angry. If you call out sin or you call out fault, you say, hey, you can't do that. They get angry. We rejoice. We may share in some of the suffering of Jesus, but we also get to share in his joy forever. Third thing you can do is receive. There's a place in obedience where we present ourselves to him in his work. Now, don't confuse the obedience with the transformation, but the obedience to him is a way to present yourself to him that he might transform you. God, when I obey, let it be a way that I present myself to you. And as I close, I'll read one more verse out of Jeremiah 31. I think this sums up where the scripture is going. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was Moses and the law. My covenant that, I, that they broke, though I was their husband... For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within, their heart, within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. God has great blessings in store for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your generous gifts, your grace, your mercy. God, we're so grateful that we can't do it, but that you did. That you let us know so that we're not tempted to try to shape ourselves or form ourselves or save ourselves in our own power. Lord, I ask you to call us into a place of increasing dependence upon you, that we would be open to that journey, that we might be salt and light to a broken and dying world and come to know you in glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.